Hey, we are uh, kicking off the Christmas season here at Flatirons. We actually kicked it off on Thursday night with a uh, volunteer celebration dinner to celebrate all the volunteers who make Flatirons happen. If you were there, will you raise your hand? And these are the volunteers that make church happen every single week. Will you guys just give it up for these servants? Across all of our campuses, like 1,700 people gathered together to just celebrate what God's doing. It was so good. And uh, uh, so we're going to start off today with a little bit of fun. Do we have any Hallmark Christmas movie fans in the room? Just hands up. Very proud, very proud. We're going to do some Hallmark movie trivia, okay? So I'm going to read a summary of a Hallmark Christmas movie, and then we're going to vote on if it's real or if it's fake. I made it up, okay? So uh, just get ready for this. Here's the first one. Just decide in your head if it's real or if it's fake. Addie is living with her mom, Sharon, filled with regret and uncertainty while attempting to finish her degree, all while avoiding her childhood nemesis and neighbor, Eric. Enter Harry, an amateur guardian angel posing as her fumbling, well-meaning new English teacher who takes on the task of guiding her to see the wonderful things she can't see in herself. With the deadline at Christmas Day to change Addie's perspective or else say goodbye to his own earthly existence, Harry is clueless but endearing in his effort to make Addie open up to a life full of promise and even love while learning a few life lessons of his own along the way. Who thinks that's a real Hallmark Christmas movie? Hands in the air. All right, who thinks that's fake? Guys, that's a real Hallmark Christmas movie, all right? That is Mr. Miracle. All right, here's the next one. Just be thinking about it. A couple meet in a weird way when their dogs meet in the park and the couple immediately make plans to be wed. <laughs> Things are more complicated than that, however, as the children of both parents have objections to the union on the grounds they can't get along as a family. Therefore, it's up to the telepathically communicating dogs to bring the prospective family together in time for the biggest event they may ever witness. Who thinks that's a real Hallmark movie? All right, who thinks that's fake? That's also real, okay? <laughs> that is a Christmas wedding tale, uh, T-A-I-L, because of the dogs, you know, you, you get it. Last one, Homeland Security mistakes Santa's sleigh for an alien spacecraft causing him to crash land in a small town while being pursued by a posse of scatterbrained secret agents. Forced to create the Christmas magic he manufactures every year without his workshop or tools, he ends up turning the neighborhood into an impromptu toy factory. Who thinks that's real? Who thinks that one's fake? Guys, that's also real. Okay, they're all real. It's called the Santa Incident. In case you guys want to watch some of these later, guys, these are all real Hallmark movies. People actually watch them. Anybody in the room seen all three? Just show of hands. No <laughs> oh, man. If you've ever seen a Hallmark Christmas movie, you know, like, outside of a couple, the plot line is basically the same every single time, right? It's like a Super successful woman in New York, works for a big-time corporation. She never has time for love, goes back to her hometown for Christmas. And suddenly there's a, there's a town-wide problem that only she can solve. And while she's solving it, she meets a handsome, surprisingly single hometown guy, teaches her how to slow down, notice the real meaning of Christmas, and they fall in love, she solves a problem, and they stay in the town and live happily ever after. Okay, guys, it's the same movie every 
single time, all right? But they know you're going to watch it, all right? They know we'll watch it. If it's Hallmark or not, there is this common theme of most Christmas movies. It's about making it home to be with the people who are the most important to you. All right, you think about like the 90s classic Home Alone, right? The family is stranded off in Paris. They got to make it back from Europe to be with their son, Kevin, who's home alone as a 10-year-old. In the more modern classic Elf, Buddy leaves the North Pole for what? To go be with his real family. He wants to find his real family. Then we've got the greatest Christmas movie of all time, um, Die Hard. So who's with me? Let's go. All right. John McClane has to climb the tower, fight the terrorists, crawl over glass, defeat Tom Gruber. Then he says the infamous line, yippee ki and we're not going to repeat the rest in here because, you know, next gen and everything. So and he, why does he do it? He does it all so he can be reunited with his wife and his daughters. You see, there's something about the holidays that just makes us want to be with the people who are important to us. You know, phone calls bridge the distance. In the meantime, FaceTime can keep us connected But we all know this, like deep down, there's just something different about being with those people. So I want us to have this in mind as we look at today's scripture in Hebrews chapter 10. If you brought your big old Bible, you can open to Hebrews chapter 10. The book of Hebrews, it was this letter written to Christians in the first century, and it was written maybe five, 10 years after Peter wrote his letters that we've been dissecting all fall. The culture at the time, it's turning up the pressure on Christians. I mean, people, they were being employed by the Roman Empire to just follow Christians to a gathering and turn everybody in. Followers of Jesus being persecuted regularly. Peter had actually, at this time, been killed by the Roman authorities. He'd been crucified upside down. The heat is on Christians at all sides. And with that in mind, here's what Hebrews tells them to do. It's Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. We'll start there. It said, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We're gonna break down these verses together, but I, I kind of wanna start in the middle of these verses. This is the verse, the concept that all of these verses are really centered around, and that's the habit of meeting together. Okay, if you and I were gonna have a conversation, you asked me about some of my habits, I would probably start sharing with some positive habits that I've worked on over time. Like, I, I try to work on the habit of going to the gym, a habit of listening to podcasts about faith or leadership during drive time. I've got a habit, I call my mom every Monday morning, she lives in Kentucky, I catch up with mom, or I've got a habit of trying to get in God's word first thing most mornings. These are these habits I've been working to develop. Then I probably also have to tell you about some other habits, ones I've been less intentional with. Like the the habit of overcommitting and saying yes to too many things at work. The habit of of having to pour a bourbon in the evening to take the edge off more nights than I want to. Or maybe the habit that I think so many of us are guilty of, uh, thinking the Broncos are going to win games this year. I mean, I see like three jerseys in the crowd right now. We don't don't even want people to know we're Broncos fans at this point. Duke professor Charles Duhigg, he studied habits for years. He wrote this book. It's called The Power of Habit. And he found that more than 40% of the actions that people performed every day, they're not actual decisions, but they're habits. So I want you to think about that. 
That means that literally almost half of your day is determined by the patterns you've either intentionally created or you've passively allowed. Here's another way to say it, okay? Your future is determined more by your habits than your decisions. There are so many applications that we could make about our habits, and maybe we'll do that in a series sometime down the road. Right now, I want to apply it directly to what the Bible is saying here. Because Hebrews tells us, it says, some people are in the habit of neglecting to meet together. And while people are doing that, we should actually do the opposite. We should make it a habit of meeting together. Rather than like waking up on Sunday morning and deciding if we're going to go to the church gathering that morning, instead we've decided months ahead of time, that's just what we do. We go to church, it's a habit. You might be thinking like, man, Jesse seems kind of self-serving. You're telling us the Bible tells us we need to come to church. First of all, you know, like, of course that's what a pastor is going to say. You know this. But at the same time, I want you to like hear our heart in this. This is not something that we want from you as much as something that we want for you. I mean, of course, all of the pastors on staff, we love a full room. Of of course, we love when people come and gather at our campuses, but it's really not about the full room. It's actually about what happens when we're inside of the room, what happens in our hearts. You see, my family's here on the weekends, not because I work here, but because there are people that we can't wait to see every Sunday morning. There are leaders who are investing in our kids in middle school and in elementary They're investing alongside me and Kara. We know that when we're worshiping with strangers and with friends, that that things just change. And we experience what God says happens when we gather together, that something happens when you're in the room. See, Hebrews talks about it. Why does it say, don't neglect the habit of meeting together? Why is it so important? We actually find out in the surrounding scriptures. So let's look at verse 23. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. I want you to think about your day-to-day week and think about the pressure, think about the questions, think about the busyness, the challenges, the anxiety, maybe the doubt. If you're like me, there are so many times where we forget about the faithfulness of God and we need a reminder We forget about what God's promised to us. We lose sight of hope, and we need this reminder. The Bible says we need to actually hold fast our confession of hope. I just want you to think about it. When do we confess? So that's like a Bible word for announce or declare. When do we confess our hope together? See, we confess a shared hope when we sing together. I know what some of you all are thinking, Jesse, everybody on the stage is so talented. You know, they can sing so well. Nobody wants to hear me sing. That's why we play the music loud, okay? We don't want to hear you sing either, all right? People complain about how loud the music is. We're like, you would complain more if it was turned down because some of us cannot sing, all right? I've, I've also seen other dudes, they say like, Jesse, I'm a dude, I don't sing. I'm a dude, I don't sing. And I've seen these same dudes wailing when their college fight song comes along. All right, like it, it just happens. You've seen it too. Whether you like singing or not, I just want you to hear me out. We really believe that something happens when you're in the room and you sing together. You see, last month, Jim and I, we were with the Maasai elders for a couple days. And the Maasai, they're this tribe in Kenya. They're one of the last warrior uh, tribes, the last remaining warrior tribes in Africa. We spent this afternoon, we're talking about Jesus and the church. We're talking about manhood. We're talking about initiation. 
And like you guys have heard Jim talk about this over the years. In African culture, they actually have real rites of passage when a boy becomes a man. What's so cool, if you follow Jim on social media, you know he's actually in Africa right now for an initiation ceremony. And one of these Maasai men was telling us part of initiation for the Maasai throughout the 20th century includes a a group of boys ages maybe 15 to 18. They're going to go out and prove they can defend the village. And to do that, the group had to go hunt and kill a lion. So yeah, that's a legit rite of passage, okay? Like in Africa, you go from a boy to a man if you kill a lion, in America, like, you go from a boy to man if you, like, log a thousand hours on Fortnite. Or I, I don't know what it is. Some of y'all are like a boy to a man five times over. I mean, you're crushing it. He said that the boys, they actually prepare for the hunt. They prepare together because you're not going to go hunt a lion alone. That's suicide. You got to do it together. And when they've located the lion they're going to hunt, they all take an herb that alters the senses and makes them a little crazy. As he's saying this, I was like, oh, we got that herb in Colorado too, you know? Like, no, they, they gather up and they start chanting an ancient Maasai chant. And, and I want you to, to hear what he said. He said, because when you start chanting, that chant fills your spirit. You become convinced that what you're chanting is true. I want you to think about how that applies to worship. In some ways, isn't that what worship's like? Chanting, singing, so that we can be convinced that what we're chanting is true. Some of y'all still can't get over the analogy. You're like, Jesse, you're forgetting about taking the herb before you start to sing, okay? I am not recommending that, all right? It's an imperfect analogy. Um, Let's be honest, some of you guys have taken that herb before coming to church before, haven't you? We found the little bags that you forgot and left in the auditorium, security comes and asks us what to do. And we're just like, just burn it. And then we're like, no, you can't just burn it. Okay. So we just give it to the band. We know that they'll do something responsible with it. We don't do that. Somebody takes it somewhere. It's somewhere. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, he's a German pastor in the 1900s. He says it like this. He says, why do Christians sing when they're together? The reason is, quite simply, that in singing together, it's possible for them to speak and pray the same word at the same time. In other words, for the sake of uniting in the word. Okay, singing together is our opportunity to remind ourselves, along with hundreds of other people in the same room, we're affirming the same thing, that what God says is true actually is true. Peter goes on to say it like this, Second Peter One, he says, so I'll always remind you of these things. I will always remind you of these things. Even though you know them, you're firmly established in the truth you now have, I'm still always going to remind you because we need a reminder. Because sometimes it feels like God's so far away, we need to remind ourselves, his goodness is running after me. Sometimes it feels like we're just fighting a losing battle. We need to declare, hey, God, you've actually already won. Sometimes our circumstances make it feel like we can't trust God's promises. We need to confess, why would he fail now? He won't. You see, when we make it a habit to meet together, when we sing together, we're reminded of the hope that we have. We're reminded of the promises of God. We're we're reminded that he's faithful and something happens when you're in the room. Let's look at the next thing that happens when we are in the habit of meeting together. Verse 24 says this, and let us consider how to stir up one another to love and to good works. 
You see, when we gather together, when we walk out, there should be a byproduct of us all becoming more loving people, people who do more good works. I mean, sometimes that just happens simply by being around other people who are following Jesus. Proverbs 12, 12 says it like this, whoever walks with the wise, that means spends time with the wise, becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. When we launched groups here years ago, some people just came up to me and said, man, I, I just need, I wanna join a group because I need to find some better people in my life. My friends, they just party all weekend and I think I would be a better Christian if I just had some better people in my life. And Proverbs says like, yeah, there's truth to that. Other people said, my friends, they're so skeptical of faith. Some of them, they're like antagonistic toward it. So I don't have anybody that I can talk to about my faith. And being surrounded by people who are running after Jesus the way that you want to run after Jesus inevitably will help you run after Jesus better. The word that Hebrews uses here is stirred up. Want to be stirred up. And that word in the original language, it's actually an aggressive word. It's translated like spurring on like you spur on a horse or sharply disagreeing. And he knew what he was saying when he wrote this because he knew that we all have our own viewpoints. We've all got our own preferences, our own beliefs. And Hebrews is saying, hey, if we want to become more loving people, people who do more good in the world, there are going to be times where our opinions and our beliefs come into sharp disagreement with what God's word says. I mean, we've all had moments like that. We hear the Bible says something and we, we don't like it. We don't agree with it. We don't want to do what the Bible says we should do. And here's the thing that I found. When I'm offended by what the Bible's saying, it is like way harder to leave the auditorium or leave a group of people who are watching the service together than it is to just click a red button on my computer. I mean, being in the room helps me keep leaning in because I can look around and see, hey, that dad is still leaning in. I can look and say, hey, my buddy over there, he's still here. He's still listening. You see, when we're in the room, we put ourselves in a better position to be stirred up and spurred on and for God's word to change us. And something happens when we're in the room. The last thing the Hebrew says happens when we meet together is right here. It says, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. You see, when we meet together, we should encourage each other. And honestly, I think this is an area where we really could do better as a church. Because Ben talked about this a, a couple weeks ago. So often we come in here, we come in here discouraged. We come in here beat down. We come in here low. And while here in Ben and Jim and some of our other teachers encourage us as a group is important, what's even more powerful is to hear direct encouragement from someone else that's meant just for you. Am I right? I mean, I'm not, I'm not talking about like, hey man, nice shirt. Is that new? Like, I like how you did your hair today. Or, hey, congratulations. When are you due? Okay? Like, never say that to a woman. You guys know that. Okay? Just let them say it. I'm talking about speaking life into each other. The word encourage, it literally means to put courage into. Encourage means put courage into. So help somebody else have the courage to stay strong and to stay faithful for another week. I mean, some of you guys are really, really good at this. You give like more than a compliment. You actually point to a quality. You'll say something like, hey, you are really good at this. And I think God's gonna use that more and more in your life. 
Personally, I'm trying to learn from people like you how I can encourage better. So something we should all be thinking about on Sundays is, is there someone I can encourage when I come to church? There's another way that we're encouraged when we meet together, but it happens more indirectly. You see, when you're surrounded by hundreds or thousands of other people who are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus together, it's a subtle reminder. Hey, I'm not alone. You see, when I was a youth pastor in Kentucky, we would always take our students to a camp with hundreds of other high school students. And one of the primary reasons we did this was to help the kids look around at hundreds of other high school students following Jesus so that they could remember, I'm not alone. Even if it feels like every day I'm the only Christian in my school, I'm not alone. See, gathering with the church helps encourage us, we're not alone. There are others who are with me. And as I was studying for this, I looked up the word encourage. And the word in the original language in the Bible is written, and the word is this word right here. It's parakaleo, parakaleo. What's interesting is this is the same root word as the Greek word parakletos, which is the word for the Holy Spirit. You see, the Holy Spirit is an encourager. The Holy Spirit is a comforter. One of the things that the Holy Spirit does is that he puts courage in us. And the Holy Spirit fills you with what you don't have so that you can do what you didn't think that you could do. The Holy Spirit will fill you with a wisdom that you couldn't have on your own. The Holy Spirit can give you a peace that doesn't make sense in the midst of your circumstances. The Holy Spirit is going to equip you with spiritual gifts so that you can better serve the people around you. The Holy Spirit is going to give you confidence that God is going to be true to his word. And here's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. Every time people are filled with the Holy Spirit, it happens when people are together. Every time in the New Testament when people are filled with the Holy Spirit, it happens in a gathering of people because something happens when you're in the room. And Hebrews finishes, you should do this all the more as you see the day drawing near. And the day, that, that, that's the day that Jim's been talking about the last two weeks. It's the day of the Lord when things actually are going to get harder in preparation for when Jesus is going to come back. Hebrews is saying there's an urgency. God says, as that day gets nearer, we should gather more and more. Let's read these verses together one last time. Let us hold fast our confession of hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. See, gathering together is so important as a church. Right now, I want to talk specifically about how it translates to us as Flatirons. I don't know if you know this, but every week, we've got thousands of people who connect with us online. See, a few thousand people are literally watching live with us right now. And online crew, you know this. We love you. We see you. We're so glad to be connected with you as you're growing in your, your faith with us. We've been intentional. You probably noticed it. We've been intentional with our communication over the last year or so. If the only way that you're connecting with Flatirons is online, you're, you're just missing out on so much more. It's a great front door for people checking out the church. They're not sure if they want to step into one of our campuses at the time. It's a good way to stay in touch with church and connected when you're out of town or you got sick kids. But it can't 
replace what happens when we don't give up on the habit of meeting together. You know, when we get out of our pajamas and we get the kids dressed for the third time, we wait in the car for our spouse to be ready. We get the kids in the car, we fight through the traffic, walk through the parking lot, wait in the bagel line. We obviously get a French toast bagel, okay? Because they're the best. Finally find a seat. And, and in a world that's telling you that everything in your life should be more convenient than it already is, you work through the inconvenience of making your way to church. Why? Because you know that something happens when you're in the room. People who watch online from out of state, they, they get this. A few of us on staff, we actually went down to Phoenix last month to hang out with a group of people who watch us online from Phoenix. And we threw this barbecue. We thought a couple dozen people would show up. And when it was done, nearly 100 people packed into this small outdoor patio. So many of them, they're wearing like flat irons, shirts, and hats. And I was just wondering, like, where did you guys get the swag? Did we ship it to you? How did this happen? And almost every person, they said, oh, we... We got it when we came up and visited. We try to come up once a year because we just want to be in the room. One of them actually said, for my birthday, the only thing I asked for was to take a trip to Flatirons. I mean, it, incredible. It's a commitment. And every week, some of those people, we've got dozens of messages from people out of state. They message us. They say, y'all should start a campus here in blank. Over the years, we've given a lot of thought to that. Like, what would campuses in different cities look like? Cities like Chicago or LA or Phoenix or Tampa. Or Tampa. And we were always waiting for the email from Hawaii. <laughs> you know, we might just have to put a campus there, suffer for the Lord. You know, we're, we've got servants' hearts. One of the hardest parts about launching a campus is how long it takes to get one started. About nine years ago, me and a team of people launched our West Campus. And that campus took two years of planning, of finding the staff, meeting with people, finding a building, renovating it. I mean, it was this two-year process. And we started thinking, at that rate, we could plant like maybe five or six campuses in the next 10 years. But at the same time, there's this like burden. Like there are so many people to reach. There's got to be a way that we can reach more people, help more people in that time. And there are just some other small logistical issues with campuses outside Colorado too. I mean, like, I don't know if you thought about this, but people in other states really don't know what a flat iron is. Like, they, they're like, you guys into like ironing clothes or like hair straighteners? They don't understand. They won't laugh about our jokes about the Broncos when they're not good, okay? Like, these are real problems, guys. But at the same time, we, we have this burden for people, thousands of people who live in different states. They're connected with us, some of them in different countries. And they've got these friends that they want to bring to church. And they know, like, I'd bring them to Flatirons if I lived in Denver. But they're not sure where to take them in their city. And there are great churches in the cities that we recommend. But they're like, I, don't, I just don't know where I can take my friend who's not sure about their faith. My friend who was burned by the church growing up. My, my friend who's on parole. My friend who's gay. My friends who has fat face tattoos. My, my friends who are bartenders. We're not sure where we could take them in our city. So we brought in this group of pastors to talk about it. All these pastors are looking at planting churches across the country. And these guys are some of the most talented, passionate, gifted young pastors in the country. And we talked about what it would look like to plant churches for people that didn't fit in most other churches. Churches where you don't have to cover up your brokenness. Like a church you could invite your bartender to. At the end of the visit, one of them posted this on his social media. He said this, Earlier this week, I flew to Denver to connect with the church for the garden, and boy, oh boy, do they love people far from God. 
Everything from training baptizers how to dunk dudes with ankle monitors to a wall of tattoos where you see it's not abnormal for tatted up people to love Jesus. These good people love their city and have shown them Jesus. Do you want to be on a mission to the lost like that? I sure do. And after that meeting, yeah, we give it up for Nolan. After that meeting, we sensed that what God had been putting on our heart for about a year, that he was up to something, that it was getting ready to be time. Let me let Jim and some of our staff tell you more about it. About 30 years ago, a small group of people got together in a little study group and decided to plant a brand new church. Eventually, they called it Flatirons. They wanted a place where anyone could show up, even if their lives were a total mess, like anyone. Church rejects, losers, addicts, people far, far from God. Flatirons was born, a new church plant. That new church was free from the beginning to do exactly what God led us to do. And wow, did he lead us. They knew they'd have to do church differently, and people showed up a whole lot of people. The church exploded overnight and just continued to grow to the point we needed to launch new locations. So we started new campuses that are basically like little mini flat irons all over the Front Range. Same name, same leadership, same feel, everything. Campuses are awesome, but it's time to follow a new direction and get back to our church planting roots. We're united in a new vision. Our elders, our staff, we're all united. We, we love our campuses, but we wanna start new independent church plants because that is how we think we can reach the most people, not new Flatirons campuses, new churches with new leaders, just like Flatirons was in the beginning. I'm excited because church plants reach younger people. New independent churches are free to do what they need to do to reach this next generation, young people and people far from Jesus. That's why the founders of Flatirons planted this church 30 years ago, so it just makes sense. So picture this, what if 30 cities in the United States and even around the world had a church like Flatirons? brand new churches, church plants with our DNA that do exactly what the founders of Flatirons imagined, reach the next generation, a lost and broken generation with the awesome life of Jesus Christ. Places like Phoenix or LA. New York or Detroit. Tampa or Miami. I'm thinking Cancun. We probably need to plant where the biggest elk are. Huh? I can go visit a lot like, I don't know, Montana. Okay, Flatirons. Planning new churches is the next chapter in the incredible story of our church. Today, we're launching the Flatirons Church Planning Network. We're going to empower next generation leaders to launch new churches that reach the next generation. We want to help start 30 new independent church plants over the next 10 years, and we need your help. Our Christmas giving opportunity will help launch this network and these new churches. We're convinced this is the very best way to have every dollar we spend reach the most amount of people. Over the next few weeks, you're gonna hear more about our dreams, including how, where, and who. Can you imagine? I mean, you've seen how God has used Flatirons. What if 30 more churches had that? See, our Christmas gift this year will change these cities. Will you join us? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every year around Christmas, we find something to unleash generosity on. Something that God could use a large group of people like this to make a huge impact together. 
And so this year, we're introducing the Flatirons Church Planting Network. This is a group of churches that exist to reach people in a lost and broken world with the awesome life of Christ. Can't wait to tell you more about it. Jim's going to be unpacking it more in the coming weeks. You see, we're planting churches because that's what a group of people did here at Flatirons 30 years ago. Before that, in the 1800s, some pioneers planted churches here in Colorado. Before that, in the 1600s, there were pilgrims who planted the first churches in America, and they did all of that based on the legacy of a man named Paul, who 2,000 years ago planted a dozen churches 5,000 miles away. Paul said it like this. He says, it's always been my ambition to preach the gospel of Christ, where Christ was not known. And while it might be hard to find an area in the country where people don't know about Jesus, there's, a, there, there's such a big difference between knowing about Jesus and knowing the real Jesus, right? I mean, knowing that no matter what you've done or who you are, that he's still for you. There are still hundreds of millions of people that need to know God's not done with them yet. You see, when Jesus put in a strategy to bring the awesome life of Christ to a lost and broken world, he didn't start up a Christian coffee shop. But they make good coffee, I'm all for it, okay? He didn't start up a, a nonprofit or a youth outreach, although my wife Kara and I, we support multiple different ones. I think we need more of them. He didn't start a Christian radio station. He didn't start an Instagram account. And you're right, he, we didn't have those back then. But even if they did, that would not be his strategy to bring his hope into the world. Plan A, B, C, D, and Z has always been and will always be the local church, a group of people joined together by God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, working together to be the hands and the feet of Jesus. And Jesus talked about it. He said, on this rock, I will build my church. Paul talked about it. Paul, Paul said, Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. Peter talked about it, said, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. And Hebrews talked about it, said, let us not give up meeting together. She may be imperfect. She may be difficult. She may be dysfunctional. She may even at times be ugly, but she is and always will be the bride of Christ. And she is his chosen strategy to bring his hope into the world. Last month, Jim and I, we visited our Eastern Hemisphere mission partners, and it was so interesting going from Uganda and Kenya, these places where the gospel is advancing, the church is thriving. And then we went to Europe. Europe is this place that once was the center of Christianity. And we toured these magnificent old churches like this. I mean, they were just beautiful in the Netherlands and in Scotland. And you know what we found? We found gift shops, museums. Artifacts of a faith that had long since left the building. It brought to life some of the statistics I've been reading about the status of faith in America. Just look at this right now. In the U.S., roughly three in ten adults now are religiously unaffiliated. In 2007, 78% said they identified with Christianity, and today it's 63%. And at the same time, the people who identify with no religion back in 2007 was 16, and today it's 29%. Here's the scary thought. Christianity in America is on the same trajectory as Christianity in Europe 50 years ago. Because we are two generations away from our churches being as empty as the churches in Europe. Let's be honest, they're probably not going to make a museum out of a church in an old Walmart, though. Okay, like, that's not going to happen. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't. I mean, imagine churches all across the country where people can actually belong before they believe. Where people can be reminded that God's not done with them yet. 
where people don't have to clean up, cover up, swallow Listerine before they come in. They can just really, truly come as they are. I mean, our dream is that God will, in in 10 years, there will be 30. But just think about like 50 years from now, what if there are hundreds of churches across the country? People in those churches, they might not know anything about this church in Colorado called Flatirons, but what they will know is that Jesus still hasn't given up on people like them and their friends. And 10 years from now, when all the statistics were pointing to a decline in faith, instead we're seeing a revival Because hundreds of students, they said, not in my generation. They fought for faith in the middle of doubt. They ran after the truth instead of their feelings. They chose Jesus over everything. And guys, this is is the dream. Ten, Ten years from now, there's a former student. They grew up in Flatiron's youth group. Because of the student pastors who invested in them, because of the leaders that gathered alongside of them, because of the investment of a church who said, we will not give up on the next generation, that student said, hey, I want to do for others what people did for me. So they signed up for Flatirons College, and they built relationships with other Christian young adults. They were mentored by some of the staff here at church, and they learned how to handle the Word of God. They got like experience with ministry hands-on. They learned these tools they would need to make a difference in the world around them and in the lives of people in their own generation. And after college, they came on staff at Flatirons, And after a few years, they start praying about what a church that's safe for the most lost and broken people would look like in another city. And they start dreaming. They start building a team. Some of you even feel like God's calling you to leave everything and move and go be a part of it. And the dream is that 10 years from now, there is a new church plant in another city led by one of the students sitting in the auditorium right now. We believe that's what God wants to do telling you, this is the start of a new season at Flatirons, not just at Flatirons. We really believe it's a new season across the country. See, where we lock arms with some existing churches who are sold out to reaching lost and broken people in a lost and broken world, we're going to start churches with the same passion, where the Holy Spirit is active and pouring courage into people each and every week, where people gather and worship and encourage and are spurred on together where hundreds of churches join together to make sure that people know God's not done with them yet. We're going to go to them. And we do that because that's what Jesus did for us. You know this, Jesus left where he was and came down to us. He sacrificed himself for us. That's what we celebrate at Christmas. We call it Advent when Jesus came down, but it's also what we celebrate in communion. And here in just a second, we're going to have the opportunity to take communion together. When we gather in a room like this, we take communion and we remember. We remember, we take a little piece of bread and a little cup of juice and we remember Jesus' body and blood that was shed for us, how Jesus left where he was and made his way down to us so that we could have a better future. And we don't just let it remind us of what he did, but we let it remind us of what we need to do as well. We need to share that with others. So the band is gonna play. We're gonna sing together and take a moment and remember and reflect and take communion and then join together with thousands of others and worship. So God, we come to you right now. And God, we remember 
God, we remember what you did for us 2,000 years ago on a day in history. God, you sent your only son to give his life up for us. But God, we also use it as a reminder of what you are still doing. God, what you can do in our midst. God, we together as a church, we have a passion for people who feel like they've been given up on, people who feel like they don't have hope. God, for people who feel like you're done with them. God, we have a passion for those people to know that Jesus is not done with them yet. The real Jesus still cares about them. The real Jesus still has a future for them. And so God, as we take communion, God, will you remind us of the length that your son went through to make sure that we knew that. God, will you remind us, God, will we see a revival because of what your son Jesus did for us 2,000 years ago and for what we are doing together as a group? It's in your name that we pray. It's your name that we worship. Amen.